Well, is that last song true? God is good. Why don't you tell your neighbor just something about today that shows the goodness of God? Something in your life today, maybe something you read, maybe something that happened to you. Uh, just tell somebody about the goodness of God. That's good. A lot of talk. You must have a lot to share. God is good, and uh, we thank Him for that. And uh, I was thinking, um, the Bible says in the book of 1 Peter that we've been born again to a living hope. And uh, tonight in this psalm we're going to look at, we're going to start in Psalms 102, 102. And uh, we're going to think about what the psalmist is going through, what his context is, and how he cries out unto the Lord. And you notice in the psalms, when they pray to the Lord, it's not a mumble, it's not a monotone, it's not just a ritual that they feel like they have to say something or repeat. It is very heartfelt, it is very intense, it is very loud, it is uh, something that uh, we would call akin to a desperate shout to the only one who can help them. And we find that so often. Now, the Bible says in the New Testament, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Did you get that? The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, my question is, what does that mean? And the idea of fervent in the Greek language is the idea of boiling. How many boiling prayers do you ever really hear? In fact, uh, I've noticed lately listening to some people, it's like uh, they start praying and then when they get to the end, they can't finish fast enough. When I was uh, doing youth work, we used to take uh, our kids out to the stables out at uh, Thunderbird, no, Draper. And uh, we'd ride those old trail horses. Those things are just sorry old things, you know. And, uh, and, and they, you know, they just plod along and plod along. Uh, I did have one one time that wanted to take me under a tree so he could knock me off. But most of the time, they don't even have that much ambition if you've ever ridden horses like that. And they know the route. You can hardly get them off of it until you get right to the very end and they see the end is in sight, and then what do they do? I mean, they take off, you know, and they go for it. They go right near the end. They can't get back fast enough. And I've noticed sometimes when people pray, they start off, and they give their introduction, and then they say the things they're supposed to say. And then as they get to the end, they go faster and faster and faster, and, and, and you know, and then get through. And sometimes you can't even understand the last part of their prayer. And... Uh, I think about those kind of things and then I think about other people that I've heard over the years, some family members and some church people and things, where any time they prayed, you knew exactly what they were going to say and you knew in what order they were going to say. You knew the cliches and uh, it was just a collection of worn, tired cliches. Uh, you know, it's just kind of funny how it is when we're in church, um, when we're at home, we eat. When we're in church, we partake. I don't know why we do that. We never say partake any other time, but it sounds 
churchy. It sounds spiritual. It sounds kind of holy. It sounds intelligent. or I, I don't know what the thing is. And that kind of creeps into our prayers. I've told you before about the Sunday school teacher I had, Sergeant Ubali in Fort Riley, Kansas. And uh, he was... Uh, uh, a man who had been saved out of Roman Catholicism. Boy, he was on fire for God. That guy was a witness like you would not believe and loved the Word of God, loved the grace of God, loved being born again. He was amazing. But as fifth graders, we never could understand his prayers because when he went to praying, he went into 1611. And uh, it was all these and thous and shouldest and wouldest and, you know, all of that and things that, you know, we didn't really quite understand. And one of the kids in the class asked him, said, uh, Mr. Ubali, when we uh, pray like that, do we have to use those kind of words? And uh, I remember him saying, oh, when you love the Lord and you know him like I do, you want to use holy words. Well, that kind of threw me and all of us, I think, because we thought, well, we have to do that. We didn't know what they meant. We didn't know how King James English worked. We just assumed if you put an F on the end of everything, E-T-H, it was holy, you know, or something like that. And uh, so thanketh thee, Lordeth, for all of thy blessings that hath cometh upon us. That's hard to say, isn't it? Glad I don't have dentures or they'd be out. And... Um, <clears throat> You know, it's just kind of funny how we do that. And then we wonder why so many people don't have a real passion for prayer. And why our prayers are not the effective, fervent prayers of a righteous man. They're just things that we've kind of strung together. We think this is what God wants to hear. And, well, sadly, can I be real honest? I'm really afraid in a lot of public praying, it's not really addressed to God. It's kind of with the idea of what other people are listening to, how we sound to other people. Have you ever been praying publicly and you get to a certain thing and you don't know how to finish? You're not really sure how to wrap it all up and tie it up in a nice, neat bow and fix it up. It's kind of, you know, like a, a bad Christmas present sometimes. Uh, I think about uh, in the movie White Christmas when the general says at one point, how do I get out of here? And Bing Crosby says, we just happen to have a slam-bang finish for you. And I think some people are like that with their prayers. They prayed everything that they know how to pray and then they're, they're not sure how to exit, how to get out of this and how we make it sound right and sound smooth. We're far too conscious of what other people think. I remember a friend of mine telling me about a man in his church who was up in the front praying and um, it was just before the offering and he was praying and then he just stops. He doesn't say anything. And people are kind of shuffling, looking around. And it's funny when you, you know, 15, 20 seconds is a long time and this was longer than that. And people are, you know, looking and that kind of thing. And finally the guy comes back in and he goes, well, Lord, I forgot what I was going to say. Amen. And everybody just died laughing, you know. But you know what I would say about it? At least he was honest. He wasn't putting on a pretense. And so often we try to put on masks. We talk differently. We act differently. We think differently. Or sometimes we pray just because it's expected. But we really just don't care. Have you noticed in Psalms there is never any apathy. There is never anything that is addressed to God that said, Ho-hum to whom it may concern. I hope you're listening and... Uh, 
you know, I feel like I need to do this. There's never anything like that. They're crying out to God in desperation because there's almost always something going on. Well, let me just say this. There's almost something going on in everybody's life. We're always under attack. The enemy is always after us. The world is always opposing us. There are always things that don't go the way we think they ought to go or the way that we uh, expect them to go. And so we get a sour attitude. We, get, uh, we, we say, what's the point in praying? I've heard this before. Nothing ever happens anyway. And uh, it kind of is a, that's got to be an insult to a holy God who is always worthy of praise. And as we say, he is so good and always so good. Now, I'll say this. If you don't pray very often, then you will get discouraged in it because you think that God is only in the big things, in the wow things. And you forget that God is doing something in everything. You ought to thank him every day for air. You ever had trouble breathing? Some of you have. Some of you have been on ventilators and things like that. Uh, I remember back when my heart failure was so bad, when I would be just, just sitting in a chair, took all the effort I could to breathe, and uh, oh my goodness, if I ever had to get up out of the chair and go to the bathroom or something like that, it, it just took every, I literally took everything I could do and I could not breathe. I could not, and I remember being in the hospital and uh, they were concerned about me and my pulse ox and everything. And they put a, uh, not a CPAP, a uh, BiPAP, BiPAP machine. Hey, I will die before I ever do that again. I was so claustrophobic and so messed up. It's pushing air in and bringing air out and all of that. And I was never satisfied. I never could relax. I never could rest. And finally, I did it, I think, for about an hour, didn't I, Sammy? And I said, get this thing off of me, and I'll just do the best that I can. There's, there's something about it. If, you ever seen anybody, if you've ever seen anybody with COPD, especially in the advanced stages, uh, that's enough to make you never want to smoke or anything like that. It's, it's a horrible thing to see somebody with all of the help, all of the oxygen, but they can't rest, they can't relax, they can't get satisfied. It's a, a terrible, terrible thing. And uh, I think that there are some people that when we think about prayer, uh, John MacArthur says, think of prayer like breathing. We breathe in and uh, we also breathe out in the confession of our sin. We breathe in the... Uh, word of God, the truth of God, and everything we are. And so just breathing is something that we ought to thank God for all the time. When we, uh, oh, you may go out for a walk. You know, it's hot right now, so you may not. But when you go out and you, uh, uh, maybe in a couple of months, let's see, what is it, July, August, September, oh, maybe by the time October comes, and the seasons start to change, do you ever just go outside and walk around and say, Lord, I thank you that for all of these thousands of years that the earth has been here, there's summer and winter and springtime and harvest, as the hymn says. Have you ever thought about the consistency of God? And have you ever thought about when you look up at the night sky and you see those constellations and maybe every once in a while you see a, a shooting star or maybe a comet or something like that. Sometimes you can see... Uh, some other planets with the naked eye. And uh, it, it's just kind of neat to think that uh, thousands of years ago, in the time of Christ and even before, they looked up and they saw those same stars and those same planets. 
and they could chart a course on the open sea by the North Star. You can't. I don't know how to do that, but they could. And they could find their way out wherever they were going and then back home by things like that because of the consistency of the universe and the consistency of nature. And we hear weather people talk all the time about, you know, Mother Nature's doing this and Mother Nature's doing this. And I uh, think when they say that, no, how about Father God does all of this? He holds everything together, uh, the book of Colossians says. And I think what happens is if we only pray, you know, at mealtimes, if we're called on it, we only pray if it's at church and we're called to do so, or we only pray in tragedies, well, then uh, we're not breathing enough and we're not breathing well and we're not thinking about all of those things. And so prayer is kind of this awkward, stilted, um, you know, uh, we, we trip up, we stumble while we're doing it, it's not natural and it's not normal. And we pray, and I don't mean to be insulting, I just want you to think. We pray about the way a one-year-old walks. And not very good, let's put it that way. So we uh, look at that and we say, well, I stumble and I stutter. I'm just not good at this kind of thing, so why do it? Why bother? I'll let somebody who's an expert at it, somebody who knows how to use going back to my story before, holy words that I don't know and understand, instead of just saying like the psalmists do, oh Lord, hear the cry of my heart. And being honest before God and letting Him know when you're happy, letting Him know when you're sad, letting Him know when you're frustrated and you don't understand, but always, always with a note of praise for who He is. Because he does all things well, even if we can't understand it. And so uh, the psalmist here is crying out to God in a way that uh, I would like for all of us to be praying. And uh, an old Puritan said, hope can see heaven through the thickest clouds. Hope can see heaven through the thickest clouds. And boy, you'll see some clouds from time to time. And you'll go through some rainy stormy weather and you'll be like the disciples and be kind of panicked and say oh lord don't you care for us and sometimes you feel that way but god puts you through those storms and those clouds to teach you that he is ever constant ever sure always loving ever faithful and he always sees you through to the other side hope sees heaven through the thickest clouds you don't want to lose your hope and one of the ways you keep your hope up is by praying to the Lord and not just, you know, doing a mumble, ritual, cliched type thing, but by actually pouring your heart out to Him. So let's look at Psalm 102 and let's look at a few verses. Verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me in the day that I call. Answer me speedily. Underline that one. That's a good one, isn't it? Verse 3. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned like a hearth. Okay, so this psalmist is saying, I got problems. And Lord, I don't feel like you're paying attention to me. That's pretty bold, isn't it? But that was his relationship with the Lord. I don't feel like you're hearing me. I'm asking you now, Lord, please hear me. 
And then when he says uh, the next verse, verse 2, he's kind of saying, pay attention to me. I feel like my prayers are just empty words. Pay attention to me. And uh, I want you to hear me and I want you to deliver me. And then he starts talking about whatever distress he is under, it is taking a physical toll upon his life. Now, when you read those words in there, that could be just describing getting old. Getting old. My days are like smoke. You ever feel like that? Where did the time go? Has it been 10 years already? I find myself doing that. I had a secretary when I was at First Baptist Tuttle, and uh, she was probably about the age I am now. And uh, boy, just the nicest lady, Doris Henderson was her name. Probably still is her name, but um, it's funny how we say that. That was her name. Not anymore. But uh, she would tell me something, and uh, I would say, oh, when did that happen? And she would say, oh, I don't know, three or four years ago. And the other secretary, my niece Tara's mother-in-law, she would go, Doris, that happened 12 years ago. That was, you know, whatever the year was. And Doris would go, oh, how could it possibly be that long? And I was pretty young then, and she would, you know, be uh, amazed because I said, I don't remember Kennedy being shot. What? you got to be kidding me. That, you know, and, and she would, her, her sense of time was all messed up. You know uh, who laughed at her? Me. You know who made fun of her? Me. You know who's doing that now? Me. Where did the time go? I didn't understand it when I was 30 or 31, but I sure understand it now. Because there are things that uh, we'll look back on and see a picture or something on maybe social media and go, when did that, oh my goodness, that happened like 23 years ago. How in the world could it do that? Now, when you're young, I mean, you think three months is just an eternity. But when you start getting old, oh, my goodness, that time goes by so very fast. So very fast. And uh, then, then, you know, you start looking at your kids and go, how in the world could I possibly have a 37-year-old kid? Some of you are worse than that, right? And you go, where did it go? Because the years go by like smoke, like smoke. And then that last verse where it talks about all of his bones are burned up like a hearth. You know what he's talking about there? Physical pain, physical pain. And I was thinking the other day, when, when did I start going, oh, whenever I got up? I didn't used to do that. And, and I try to not do it now, uh, but sometimes it comes out before I even mean for it to. And, um, you know, you just you think about those kind of things. And some of you, even here tonight, I admire you so much because I know you have physical pain and yet you come to church on a Wednesday night. Good for you. God bless you. You're a great example to us. And uh, that's what he's talking about. But as I studied on all of this, my initial thing, while everything I just said was true, and it could be describing that, that doesn't seem to be what the setting or the context really is. What is he talking about? And he's talking about being under such stress and such despair that it was making him an old man before his time. 
You know, it'll do that. Stress will do that to you. Stress will take away your vitality. It'll make you tired. It'll cause you to get sick. And this apparently is what is happening. The times were so bad and he's crying out to the Lord that he's having physical problems and it's made him an old man before his time. The context of this, according to Dr. Steve Lawson, I'll quote him here, Psalm 102 was written during a low ebb of the history of God's people. Its setting is the Babylonian captivity of God's chosen people, Israel, uh, a time when God's work, now look at this, had seemingly come to a standstill. Can you relate to that? I mean, I think most of us can. There are those times when it seems like God is just doing all kinds of great things all around us. And then there are those times when it's like it comes to a screeching halt. What happened? What happened? Well, it could be because of sin like it was in Israel. Or it could be a time of testing. Are you going to be faithful even when you can't see anything, feel anything, or experience anything? And uh, it goes on to say, it uh, was a time when God's word was not being preached, there was a famine of the word of God, when God's people were in the minority, ooh, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? It was a time when God's house lay in ruin and when God's holy city was in shambles and when God's glory was veiled. Now there's going to be another time God's glory is going to show up but it's going to be veiled, and that's in the person of Jesus Christ. The uh, hymn, Hark the Herald Angel Sing, that we do at Christmas says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Well, sometimes it's hard to see God when it's veiled in anything. Veiled in flesh, or veiled in trouble, or whatever. We just don't always see it. And faith would cause us to say, Praise God, I can't see you or feel you, but I know you're there. And God, as Jesus told us, is always at work, but sometimes we can't see it. Sometimes it's deep underground as a seed that is put into the ground dies, but yet something bursts forth from it. But that's not instant, it takes time. And even after the seed uh, sprouts, it takes time before the harvest comes in, and we're not patient people. I remember back when microwaves were expensive and very new, I remember I was living with Steve and Terry Elkins at that time. And uh, Brother Steve, he always had a dry sense of humor, a way of putting things. And he said to me, you know you're impatient when you have a brand new microwave and you get upset because you have to cook your hot dog for 15 more seconds. Isn't that the way we are? Isn't that the way we are? We don't know how to wait. We don't know how to be bored. We don't know how to deal with things like that. And uh, yet, that's the way these people lived. And sometimes, even in our walk with God, He's teaching us, He's training us. And uh, we say, oh God, do something great so I can be fired up and, you know, and pepped up and I can talk about what you've done. And He goes, no, just trust me and just walk with me. Follow my footprints and just walk with me. And uh, you'll learn and you'll grow. And we learn that it's not always... Um, what was it the old preachers used to say? It's not how high you jump, it's how straight you walk. Well, I don't like that. That gets on my nerves sometimes. One foot in front of the other. I've been doing a little bit of running lately because uh, the walking I've been doing is not really 
you know, getting my heart going like I want it to. And uh, here's my confession. I hate every step of it. I don't like it. I've never liked it. Even when I was younger and I would run for miles, I never liked it. I've never felt the runner's high. I've never got anything like that. All I ever got was sore and bored. And it's like, oh, clop, 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 clop. You know, you just go on like that. Well, how do you, how do you make it a long way when you're running? Well, you, you have to get started sometimes. And maybe you can't go very far, but you do what you can. And then the next day, you try to lengthen it out just a little bit, don't you? And then you lengthen it out after that. And there comes a certain point to where you're uh, going, well, this is the farthest I've gone in a long time. How do I make it? Just by putting one foot in front of the other over and over and over and over. Even though your brain is going, let's stop. You know, and your body's going, yeah, that sounds good to me. I'm tired of this. And, uh, you know, your feet and your knees and all of that are starting to kind of go, uh, hey, you notice us? You will. And uh, so you keep on going and then you're gasping for air and doing that kind of stuff. And then you also think about, man, I can remember last time I did this, I didn't gasp for air like this and I didn't hurt like this and I wasn't sore. Remember those days? But how do you keep it going? One foot in front of the other. How do you walk with God? One foot in front of the other. It's not always a hip, hip, hooray, three cheers for Jesus or anything like that. Or look at this, somebody grew a leg and look what happened and, you know, and something like that. It's not always like that. In fact, most of it's not like that. In fact, I was kind of looking through <clears throat> the book of Acts one time. And I know that it says in their words like, and many other miracles took place. But when you really look at them, they're not just an everyday constant thing there are things that amazed people because they were kind of rare they were not all the time i mean if you were traveling with an apostle maybe but in just everyday life in the churches it was not just an everyday thing that's why they would get amazed by all of that stuff the ordinary as i preached a couple of sundays ago the ordinary things is where god seems to put us and where he seems to work now, how does he get our attention? Sometimes it's through tragedy. I've heard people say to me, well, you have to understand I'm just not a very emotional person. Okay? Now, <clears throat> let their grandchild come down with leukemia, and they will be. They will have no trouble crying. They will have no trouble expressing things. They'll have no trouble crying out to God. Let somebody that they love be in a bad automobile accident and you will find them at the hospital in ICU. They are bold. They are unashamed. They don't care who's looking. They're crying out to God and weeping and begging God to heal that person. And so sometimes I think if we want to say, oh Lord, I want to be a fervent prayer. Well, if we're not careful, what will happen is God will have to bring something into our life to stir up those things. And uh, that's not always very pleasant, is it? And that's the way Israel was. Israel in this time, yeah, they had sinned a lot. And yes, they were worshiping idols. But let's not forget, they were also worshiping God. And they were still going to the temple. They still had their high priests. They still had their sacrifices. But when they were offering those things, they were, can we get this over with? I've got an appointment at the temple of Baal over here. And, you know, it's a whole lot more fun there, man. We're going to break out in a, a big dance and an orgy and all of those kind of things. And this is kind of boring compared to that. 
kind of like we do now with church so often. Why is that church so much more fun than our church? As if you find anywhere in the Bible where the goal is, where uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, make sure the people have fun. It's kind of what Spurgeon said, are we feeding sheep or are we amusing the goats? And I'm afraid there's a lot of amusing of goats that's going on today. And then we wonder why we're so ho-hum about our singing, so ho-hum about Bible study, so ho-hum about preaching, so ho-hum about our quiet time. All of that kind of stuff just messes us up. I want to know how to get to where my prayer can be fervent and I don't have to wait for Babylonian captivity for that to happen. I mean, these people that have been so nonchalant about God... <clears throat> when Nebuchadnezzar came and tore down their temple, tore up their city, <clears throat> and hauled the brightest and best away to Babylon, they had no problems with it, did they? So uh, I want you to think about what's going on here. We'll go through this relatively quick. Number one, I want you to notice the psalmist's emotional state. <clears throat> Do you ever have any emotion when you pray? Or is it just... You know, just mumble the same old things in the same old way, same old cliches. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come before you. One writer said, it appeared as if God was inattentive to his prayers, given God's uh, present lack of intervention. The silence from heaven made him cry for help. Look at this, louder and stronger. So it may be, that God says, I want you to be an effective, fervent prayer warrior. And I know how to get you there. Now, are we going to cooperate? Are we going to learn? Or does it have to get more and more and more and more intense? I want to be a quick learner. You need to be a quick learner. We all need to be that way so that we're not just stubbornly persisting in doing the same old thing in the same old way and then uh, ending up where... Things have to get more intense in order to stir our emotions to that point. Now, I'm not saying emotion should be the basis of our prayer. I'm just simply saying when you have the opportunity to pour out your needs and your situation to the king of the universe, I, I just don't see us being nonchalant if we were doing that to an earthly uh, king or an earthly queen or an earthly ruler. And yet before God, we tend to be that way. Number two. Notice the psalmist's desperation. And I found that in the Bible, God seems to meet his people at desperation. But we in 21st century America do everything we can to never have a moment of desperation in our lives. We want to have plenty of stuff. We want to have plenty of resources. We want to have plenty of knowledge. We want to have all of that so that we almost don't really have to pray until we've come to the end of ourselves. Well, actually, that's where God wants you all the time at the end of yourself. Jesus said this, apart from me, you can do, can you finish it? Nothing. nothing. Isn't that interesting? He didn't say you can do most of it. He said you can do nothing. But we still think we're like toddlers. Me do it myself. And we try real hard. But we're not very good at it. So God brings us to the point of desperation. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me. I really need you. And there is no substitute. And sometimes I think our prayer lives suffer because we feel like there's a substitute. 
we feel like there's an alternative. It's like that old uh, corny joke about the pastor who comes into uh, the church office and he said, well, Miss Jones, we've done everything we know to do. There's nothing left to do but pray. And she goes, oh, no, has it come to that? Why is it that we see prayer as a last resort? And God brings us to the point of desperation, seeing how inadequate we are and how great and wonderful uh, that he is. And so uh, think about this. The more corruption that we see in the world around us and in people around us, the greater our confidence should be in God because he's the only hope for all of this mess, folks. The only one that we've got. He's the only one that can save a soul. He's the only one that can restrain a government that's intrusive. He's the only one that can change the moral climate. He's the only hope that we have. We forget that, don't we? And we should come to him in desperation. Desperation before him. And um, I think that what we're reading here in Psalm 102 because it is the Babylonian exile, the people there are saying, this is the worst thing that ever happened. I got a feeling some of the prophets were going, hallelujah, God's answering our prayer. What if the revival we say we really want in America took our destruction in order to get there? We would be moaning and crying and complaining about all of that, and the angels would be rejoicing because that might be what it takes to get us serious about the Lord and to reclaim our nation. And so uh, uh, the prophets and the remnant of the godly of Israel have been praying for revival and renewal. Well, the exile was the answer to those prayers. And so we say, oh God, why don't you do something? Because I'm not going to do anything. This is the key to getting you right with me. Why would I interfere? I want this to happen. This is the way it's going to happen. So thirdly, notice the psalmist perspective. In the day that I will, uh, that I call, answer me speedily. And so the perspective of the psalmist is uh, we're getting to the point now where there's not much time. You know what I'm feeling about our nation? There's not much time. I've heard people say that for years since I was a little kid. I really didn't think I would graduate from high school before the world would end. Uh, that's when we had movies about the end times and conferences about the end times. But uh, now it's been a long time. So, oh, guess he's not going to come. Guess I don't need to worry about it. You know, everybody saw, you hear this kind of stuff. Every generation thought the Lord would come in their generation. Hey, listen, newsflash, you're supposed to. You're supposed to be ready for it. It's his business whether he does or not. You're supposed to be ready for it parable of the ten virgins remember that be ready you never know when it's going to happen but because he hasn't and we look at that we go well you know i don't know about all of that and i don't know that he will and so we get stuck down here on earth but sometimes i think age puts a perspective on us when we look at things and we say wow with everything we're seeing going on in our country and in the world, it's not just about us in America, it's the world that you look at. Boy, it looks to me like time is getting short before nations are destroyed and judgment comes upon them, before people die. There are a lot of people that I look at that I've known for a long time, and I think about them. How much time do they have left 
We're all getting older. The runway's getting shorter. We don't have the time we think we have. There was a time when we probably could have said, well, one of these days I'll get around to this. But I'm saying to you now, as we look at the times in which we live and we look at ourselves and our bodies that are changing and how we're getting older, we ought to be the ones that are really, really praying fervently because we don't have that much time left. And I don't think our country has as much time as we would like unless God intervenes and brings some type of renewal and revival. So the psalmist says here, Lord, this is not the kind of prayer that just, you know, whenever you get around to it, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. We don't have a thousand years. We need you to move and we need you to move now. And we're calling upon you, Lord, please, O sovereign one, answer us, but answer us speedily. I've got some things that I pray for the Lord to do before I die in my life. Some things I would like for him to let me experience and to see before I die. Because I don't know how much time I have left. None of us do. But there are some things I would like for the Lord to do speedily and so that's his perspective there's not a lot of time in this now that's not just simply like we're informing God God there's not a whole lot of time and God's on the throne going oh is it that time already you know that kind of thing what this does when we say this that is God working in our heart to let us know there is not much time and we need God we need him desperately we need him quickly because of uh, the need of the hour. There's not a whole lot of time. The next thing that I notice when I think about this is, you know, of course there's no place to go. And uh, he, of course, is our living hope. And so that's the psalmist realization. You get down to verse 3. For my days are consumed like smoke. You know what? The psalmist is doing something that a young person doesn't do and probably can't do. All of a sudden, I'm aware of my own mortality. Okay? You go in for open-heart surgery, and uh, I'd never really had any surgery much before, nothing that was major. I'd had tonsils out, and I'd had a retina repaired. You know, that's not that big a deal in terms of going under the knife or recovery or anything like that. Then when they tell you open heart surgery, you're going to open me up? Nobody's supposed to be in there. God armored all of this kind of stuff up so that nobody would ever see it, nobody would ever touch it, nothing would ever happen. Well, they, you know, take it and cut it open and spread it apart, work it. They stop the heart and then they fix it and then they start the heart. And uh, one of the uh, doctors PAs was telling me that you will have some personality change and other things for a while because your brain doesn't trust the signals it's getting from the heart because when they stopped the heart you know what the brain was hearing and seeing we just died what's going on and they've got you on a machine to pump the blood but Tony was telling me that your heart is a pulsing beat but the machine is steady when the blood goes through and the brain's just all confused about what's going on and then she also said, and your heart gets a little griping and a little angry because it doesn't like to be messed with. Well, I guess not. It's never even supposed to be seen or touched or anything like that. But then again, I'm thankful that they can do all of that. But you know what you do when you uh, kiss your wife before you go into surgery like that? You're thinking, I might not wake up from this. I might not come out of this. And all of a sudden... 
you're confronted with your own mortality. That's what the psalmist is doing. Boy, we can act like we've got all the time in the world and nothing's ever going to go wrong. And so that's why uh, when you're young, you put on a towel and pretend it's a Superman cape and then you jump off the roof of a house. You ever do that? And my towel didn't work. Right? And then I decided I liked Batman better because he didn't fly. And uh, I could play Batman and I didn't have to try to fly or anything like that. That's why you build ramps for your bicycle. If you have one of those Stingray bikes with the banana seat and all that, you build the ramp and, you know, and pop a big wheelie and try to land on your back tire. Doesn't always happen, does it? But, you know, who cares? It doesn't matter. You know, the worst thing about all of that, we were talking about this in Sunday school, that gravel that gets underneath your hands, that's horrible, isn't it? And that red stuff that they, your mom would put on you and it'd burn and all of that. And uh, why do you do stupid things like that? Stupid things on the monkey bars and all of those kind of things. Why do you do that? Because when you're a little kid, you, it never crosses your mind that you're going to die. But after you get some experience and after you've gone through some things like this guy has, he's got it. I don't have much time left. It's passing quick like smoke blowing before my eyes. And the stress that I've been under, oh Lord, I hurt. And everything hurts and nothing. I mean, he probably didn't have much time if he's been taken captive as a slave to Babylon. They probably didn't let him rest much or eat much. And they marched him a long, long ways every single day with chains and shackles on them. You think that was pleasant? You think their body didn't start wearing down and breaking down during all of this? And so the psalmist had a, a realization, something that we need to do. Something we need to grab a hold of. Why is it important that we serve God and serve Him with intensity? Serve Him with gladness? Whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your might. All, why is all, all in there? Do all things heartily as unto the Lord. Why is that in there? Because you don't have an eternity to do that here on earth. You're going to go home. Either the Lord's going to sound the trumpet and here we go. Or you're going to pass away and you're going to go absent from the body, present with the Lord. And there are just some things in heaven you can't do that you do down here. You know, in heaven, there's no lost people, so you'll never be able to witness again. You've got to do that down here. So you can't be laissez-faire about that. That's your job. And when you are in heaven, because all of us will be complete, you'll never be able to disciple anybody. Nobody's going to need your counsel. Nobody's going to need your experience. Nobody is going to need your help. Nobody's going to need anything that you, uh, the Lord has taught you or anything that you've learned from the Word of God. I mean, can you imagine? We're going to be in heaven and we're going to say, Hey, I just read something out of the book of James and the Bible says here. And they'll go, Yeah, we got that, dude. We do that stuff down here, don't we? Because there are plenty of people who don't know what the book of James says. There are plenty of people who don't know how to live. And they don't know what the Ten Commandments are. They don't know what the filling of the Holy Spirit is. They don't know any of those kind of things. This is the time. And we've got to be burdened about that now. This is the time where we help people who are dying. This is the time where we help people who are hurting. This is the time where we rescue the perishing. We're not going to get a chance to do any of that in heaven because there's not going to be anything in heaven that ever hurts us. Now that, on one hand, is something to look forward to, isn't it? What a day that will be. But it also means 
that this is the time where we minister to people and minister to their hurts, minister to their fears, minister to their problems, minister to their grieving, minister to their sicknesses and all of that. And the time when we tell them about Jesus and this is the time when they get saved, we disciple them. You're not going to have the chance to do that anywhere else. You say, well, I think we got saved to fellowship with God. Well, if that were the case, then you'd come down the aisle, take the preacher by the hand, pray the sinner's prayer, and then immediately he'd kill you and take you to heaven. But he didn't. He left you here. You're here by assignment. And we need to be passionate and fervent and boiling about that. And it starts or ends with our prayer life. Starts or ends with our prayer life. Can I encourage you? On all of that, don't be a formal, ritualistic prayer. Got to have some feeling in it. <clears throat> you got to have some emotion that is in that. And don't just be the one that says, well, you know, one of these days I'll get around to praying. Be a desperate prayer and realize God is our only hope. And then realize your perspective. This is so desperate, we need God to move now. Now, am I in the place where God can move through me and use me now? Not someday, but now. I want to be like that. I want to be blessable, and I want to be an, uh, a pipeline, a conduit for the blessing of God to other people. And then we've got to understand our perspective. Boy, life goes by so much quicker than you ever thought it would. Some of you can say amen to that, right? Gosh, I remember when our kids were babies and somebody would come up to them, oh, turn around twice and they'll be married or something. Like, well, well, not today. Seemed like it took forever to get them out of diapers. Seemed like they were just toddlers for a long time. You know, you get, it gets kind of wearisome sometimes. And then all of a sudden you uh, are in this position that Sammy and I are in and uh, they're off with their own families. And uh, there's good and bad about that, isn't there? Grandchildren are great, aren't they? But you see what I mean? It's also a reminder, the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking. Can I beg you to get intense about your prayer? Fervent about your prayer? Intentional about your prayer? And not just formal or ritualistic or anything please so may we go to the lord heavenly father we come and we look at what the psalmist and all the other ones that we've read as well we see the same thing reflected in them and we are just so um, thoughtless we have very little passion we don't have much zeal we kind of tend to look at you instead of our first resource you're you're a last resort. And we just want to say, forgive us. And Lord, we don't want to have to go through a, a tragedy in order to really get intensive about our prayer life. We would like to learn that in the little things, in the everyday things. And so we're praying that like this psalmist, we're praying that we would be fervent, emotional in our prayers because we See the desperation of people and the desperation of our times and the desperation of our need. And there's no one else that can do anything except you. And we pray, Lord, that we would have the right perspective. That 
this matters and what we're praying about matters and the people we're praying about matters. So when we pray for someone to be saved, let it be on our heart. We want them to be saved today. We want to be involved in leading them to Christ. When we want to see somebody growing in the Lord or retrieved out of the fire, we want to see it happen today and now. And when we think about our nation and the shape that we're in, I don't know that we have another 50 or 100 years. Do something now and do something in our church now, Lord, is is where our heart ought to be and help us to see the, our perspective we're not getting any younger time is going by and jesus even told us work while it is daylight for the night is coming when no one can work obviously he's using a metaphor for the coming of the lord and uh, we want to be ready for the coming of the lord but we don't want to be negligent about what we're doing down here and now so overhaul us and change us and help us and fix us and we pray all of this would be not so we can brag about ourselves but so that we can give glory and honor to the lord and it's in jesus name we pray amen